Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Anybody who's been to a few funerals in their life have discovered there are some passages of Scripture that have become the go-to, the default scriptures during the time of grieving. One of those that you would obviously think about would be the 23rd Psalm. One of the other scriptures that you're going to hear quite often is the one we're going to read today. That is starting in the 14th chapter of John. The famous words of Jesus, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm sure many of you could quote that as well. The title of my sermon is, Don't Worry, Trust Me. The first thing I want to try and build for you in your understanding is what the disciples were facing and the context under which Jesus spoke these words. Like I said, you've heard those so many times at a funeral. It's a passage that we use because it's designed to bring great comfort and assurance to those who are in the deepest throes of the darkness of grief. None of us are comfortable with the thought of being separated from our loved ones. It's a sickening thought. It's a frightening thought. I have now, at this point in my life, lost both of my parents. Lost my mom in 2001 and my father in 2005. Up until that point, that was the most disturbing thought that I fought to keep from coming into my mind. Every day that they lived, I had them with me, was a good day. And perhaps the thought would come into my mind, one of these days I'm going to get that phone call. And as quickly as I thought that, I said, we're not going there today. I don't want to think about that. There was a a sick, nauseating feeling that I didn't know how I would be able to cope with that phone call. We all know the impact of losing a loved one. We all, I am sure, share the uncertainty and the hesitancy of losing a loved one. And these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples have been used throughout the centuries to minister to people. The suffering, the pain of, and the fear of loneliness due to the loss of a loved one. Yet, even as we associate this passage with the things I have described, my loss, your loss, we can't lose
lose sight of the context in which Jesus spoke this. Jesus was speaking to his disciples who were about to experience the greatest emotional pain they had ever felt in their life. Didn't make any difference if these men had already lost loved ones. What they were going to experience was going to be the greatest pain ever. And I'm going to spend a few minutes kind of building the understanding and our awareness of how deep and intense that pain would be. How can I describe the depth, the strength of the emotional bond between the disciples and the Master? I ask you, how do you feel when you have finally met that someone in your life that proves to be your absolute, unquestionably dearest friend? That one friend you consider to be closer than a brother or a sister. That friend that understands you and accepts you just as you are. That friend that never betrays you, never embarrasses you, never berates you, never belittles you. That friend that loves you right where you are. That friend that you ache to be with them when you're apart. That friend that for some of you, you could talk for hours about nothing. You just enjoy their company. That friend that each of you have come to know what each other is going to say before you actually speak it. You've become that close. And that only begins to describe the bond between the disciples and Jesus. We use that word friend, but I don't think we always understand the full dimension that word friend. We sing that old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. But do we grasp the depth of that relationship? Another old hymn, friendship with Jesus, fellowship with God. Oh, what blessed sweet communion. Jesus is a friend of mine. Do we understand how deep that is? How many of you have only thought at one time in your life that you met that friend? One day, you discovered they weren't that friend at all. You were crushed. You saw a different side of them. They betrayed you. They turned on you. You thought you could trust them. You'd begun to confide in them, telling them things you would tell nobody else. And then suddenly, you realize, I couldn't trust that person. But see, Jesus was the real deal. The disciples had met this man. And everything they thought he would be, he was. He was more than that to them. They trusted him. They confided in him. He never betrayed them. Everything they hoped he would be in their friend, he proved to be far beyond that. No wonder they loved him so dearly that Peter said, as we studied last Sunday, I'm ready to die for you. How many of you have a friend that you love them so dearly that you, like Peter, would say without hesitancy, I will die for you. I don't know many of us have that close of a friend. Now can you begin to understand the intense relationship between the disciples and Jesus? This 
bond that had built between them. Never a single flaw in his character. He was real, unlike the shysters that we have today that make a pleasant show of themselves. But then we soon discover their shady characters. Jesus was real. He was the wisest man they ever met. He was infinitely patient. He never embarrassed himself. He never embarrassed his disciples by making a fool of himself. When he debated his enemies, he always won, hands down. And the disciples are always so proud of their master. He never lost one of those debates. Can you just see the disciples when these brilliant minds of the day and the age, these scholars of the times came to confront Jesus to try and put him in the place and the disciples were going, watch this. He was perfect. And Jesus spoke to them. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Not because that their, trouble, their hearts were troubled right then, but because in a very few hours... Their hearts were going to be troubled like they had never been troubled before. And Jesus, Jesus spoke to them and braced them. Get ready. You're going to be troubled. I'm telling you, don't let your heart stay troubled. Difficulties are going to come. You don't have to stay there. He prepared them for that pain of separation. He also prepared them in a similar note for the shock of reality they were about to experience. And let me take this a step further to understand why Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. In order to more fully and deeply grasp what I've spent a few minutes trying to explain to you, they were going to go through two psychological conditions very shortly. Number one, they were going to have separation anxiety. And number two, they were going to experience loneliness. Now, these two things I want to explain a little bit to you. Separation, anxiety. Let me begin with this example. My oldest son and daughter-in-law had two dogs, and they both died within just a few weeks of each other. They had had the dogs their entire married life. And they lost both dogs, and they wanted another dog. So they went out and found uh, a big dog that was kind of a cross between a Newfoundland and uh, a lab. I think it was a black lab and a Newfoundland. They wanted, she wanted that security and that protection. And the first day that they left the dog at the house, they came back, and they found that the dog had ate the house. They go back, and they ask the the person to get, what's with the dog? The dog has separation anxiety. Now, we've, we've investigated separation anxiety in the animal kingdom. We're going to bring that into the human realm. <laughs> I don't know anybody with separation anxiety that chews the doors and tears the screens out. But we do have anxiety when we are extremely emotionally discouraged through this separation in in children, there's separation anxiety. In babies, there's some form of separation anxiety. But in adults, it's extreme fear or anxiety that it manifests itself when they are asked to do things alone that they're accustomed to doing with somebody. And specifically, it's in the absence of the person that they once considered 
their special friend, or their main caregiver. Now, that's not the full uh, definition. It doesn't encompass everything, but it kind of gets us going in the right direction. Secondly, it's the fear of being alone. And third, it's the fear that the one they are most attached to might leave them or be harmed in some way. The second thing that people can experience is loneliness. Here's some facts about loneliness that maybe you've never heard before. Loneliness has less to do with the quantity of friends you have, and it has more to do with the quality of friends. Number two, get ready, 60% of married people are lonely. Number three, loneliness actually makes you feel physically colder. Number four, loneliness increases blood pressure and cholesterol. It activates physical and psychological stress responses. Chronic loneliness increases risk of cardiovascular diseases. Loneliness suppresses the immune system. And loneliness increases our risk of death by 14%, making it rate as equally dangerous as smoking cigarettes. Can you imagine that? The ill effects that loneliness has on our actual physical being. Now, the reason I've spent some time doing this is not just to fill in my sermon with fluff, because I am trying to build the case for the emotional trauma that the disciples were about to go through when Jesus spoke to them and warned them, I know what you're going to face, and I'm telling you right now, don't let your heart be troubled. The disciples had certainly, unquestionably found their best friend. And he was about to be taken away from them. In the most dramatic, unexpected fashion, their friend would be betrayed, tried, brutally beaten, and executed before their eyes. And not only the trauma of watching this happen, but to suddenly have this kind, wonderful, gentle, loving, loving, wise, dependable, faithful friend, the best friend they had ever had, taken from them. Can you now begin to imagine the deep emotional turmoil they were just about to experience? The master is gone. Can you imagine the disciples wrestling in those dark three days after the crucifixion, before his resurrection from the tomb? Can you imagine them wrestling with the thoughts of quitting, wondering where they could possibly go from here, their reluctance to try and do anything in Jesus' absence? He's always been by their side as he pushed them to be greater than they'd ever been before and empowered them for ministry and they gave them authority over unclean spirits and the power to raise the dead and heal the sick. And now he's gone. And like it said in the description of separation anxiety, the fear of being expected to do things suddenly alone. Rarely has anybody read this passage and fully grasped the emotional trauma 
the disciples were about to go through. We always put it in the funeral context. But what about the disciples? We know how emotionally traumatized people are at funerals. We know, I know, I've, I've performed dozens of funerals in my ministry. I know the depth of the emotional trauma the families experience. Part of the frustration is I find it impossible to be able to formulate the words that immediately takes away the pain. You just do the best you can. You sympathize. You love. You comfort. You pray. But if I could just reach in and just take the pain away, I would do that. But they hurt. And so in this context of the disciples facing this tremendous trauma, Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the word troubled doesn't do justice. It should read more graphically, don't let your hearts be overcome with turmoil. Get ready. It's coming, but don't be overtaken by it. The world is about to be turned upside down in your life. These disciples would be shaken to the core. But the remedy Jesus offers is this. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Which more accurately should read, that word believe is not the best word. That kind of puts us in the mind of thinking, if you just have this mental acknowledgement there is a God up there, everything's going to be okay. But the real word that should be there, that is conveyed in the original language, is you trust God. You can trust me. Jesus was speaking about more than being mentally persuaded that there is a God. He was speaking about their deepest trust. Trust me. Trust me. I know what you're going to go through. Don't be overcome by it. Trust me. You're not going to understand for the next few days what's happening. It's going to seem like everything is falling apart and that our plan for ministry has been completely aborted and I led you astray and you're going to wonder why you ever bought into this for three years now that I'm dead. But I'm telling you, trust me. You're about to be tempted that the last three years of your life that you quit your job to follow me has been a complete waste of time. Trust me. The confusion and the chaos you're about to walk through are going to make it look like our plan was a complete failure. But trust me. It's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. But trust me. And God is still speaking those words today. And there's some of you sitting in this sanctuary today that you came here because the Holy Spirit said there's a word for you from God. And I want you to go around and sit in that church and hear what God has to say to your soul. And God is still speaking today and say you're about at your wit's end. You don't know what to do, but trust me. You feel like a drowning man grasping a straw, but God is telling you today, trust me. You feel like you've endured about all you can endure and you can't take any more. You don't think you have any strength left. You don't know what you're going to do, but God says, trust me. The enemy is pushing you beyond the limits of your endurance. 
and he's whispered in your ear, you're better off dead than alive. And some of you have even thought about that. But God says, trust me. You know why you can trust God? Because in him, there's a future. Because where there is a future, there is hope. Because Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to get you. Because there's a hope in God. You can trust Him. You think there's nothing left to live for down here? There's a lot left to live for up there. Trust Him. Now my next point you will not clap for. You may even boo me. I bring sad news to you today. Jesus said in my Father's house are many mansions. And we've even written songs emphasizing that. Some of you have been in church for all of your life. May remember back whenever we would gather together and sing... I have a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. Some of you who follow maybe some southern gospel music may remember Dottie Rambo writing that song, I have no castles, no earthly kingdoms, but this cabin will do me till I get home. But then she says, just build my mansion next door to Jesus. We loved it. Come on, people, I love it. Who doesn't like thinking that shanty that we've had to dwell in down here is going to be traded someday for a mansion? That would excite any of us. Except I am the bearer of bad news today. Because Jesus was not talking about a mansion that we wrote songs about. Boy, are we embarrassed. You see, the Greek word there, and... And people are going, oh, not the Greek word again. Can't we just believe the Bible for what it says? Yes, we can. First, we have to know what it says. The Greek word means dwelling places. And in the day whenever King James men made that translation, they put the word mansions because... For them, the word mansions, dwelling places, did not mean a big, fancy house. For them, they understood it was a dwelling place for a family. Many Now, think about it. Think about it, people. This is what's going to make sense to you. And you're going to go, oh, duh. In my father's house. How many mansions do you have inside of your house? How many houses do you have inside your house? In my father's house. First, Jesus is describing the house, are many. And if you have almost any other translation besides King James, they have rightly translated it rooms. In my Father's house are many rooms. And that's what King James men were trying to convey, except the meaning of mansion changed over time. And then came along 20th century Christians that we've been just poisoned with the, the gospel of prosperity and people promising us that one of these days you can trade in your old stick home for a big mansion in heaven, and it's become almost our goal for getting there. What Jesus was saying, though, in my Father's house are many dwelling rooms, many dwelling places. 
And the next thing he said, we also have misunderstood. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, if we think it's a mansion, and he says, I go to prepare a place, now we've got this mental picture of Jesus, the carpenter, who's taking a very, very long time to build a house for me. The main reason he went away is to get his saw and his hammer and to build that mansion. So when I get there, he's been building for centuries. What a house this is going to be. But we forget that some of the last words he spoke when he was on that cross is, It is finished. He didn't go to start a mansion. When he said, I go to prepare a place. He was talking about what he was doing just in a few hours to prepare. He was doing all the preparation, all the work to prepare that place for us. How did he prepare it? Because he took our sins upon himself. He endured the pain of the cross. He expired hanging there on the cross. They put him in the tomb, and three days later he arose again. And man, it's ready. It's prepared. The work is done. It's finished. He's not building your house. He's already got everything done for you. The work is done. It's completed. That was the preparation. But that other stuff is the stuff that prosperity messages are made of and prosperity teachers use to get more of your money because it appeals to the carnal desire of the poor and the deprived. What Jesus was doing was telling them what you're about to experience in your pain, you can endure. Now, I think I've made it pretty clear in my comments so far that the pain of separation and the pain of loneliness is very, very real. I know personally of people in this church who have suffered loss. I've been there for you. I've wept with you. I've prayed for you. I know what it feels like because I've also been there myself. We know what pain is, don't we? There's no sin in the pain. What we have to understand Jesus is telling his disciples that translates for us is we don't have to stay in that place of despair and hopelessness. Because there is a remedy, there is hope, there is a salve, there is a balm in Gilead. And if your pain's not going away, your memory will not go away as long as you remain sane. Your memory will, but if the pain's not going away, you're not giving it to Jesus. Because he says, you don't have to be overcome. The sad thing is, those people who allow the pain of their loss, their separation, and their loneliness to overcome them, it does happen. They just can't get by it. They cannot cope. It's been years, but they still can't cope. They can't. Jesus said it doesn't have to be that way. There is a resource. There's a remedy. You've got to give it to him. You've got to get over this. Nobody's asking you to forget it. We are telling you that Jesus said you don't have to be overcome by this. Because if you trust God, you can trust Jesus. If you trust Jesus, he has made preparation for you. There is a hope. There is a future. 
And for those of you that have lost loved ones that you know as much as a human being can know that they are in heaven today, we're going to have a reunion one of these days. They're not gone. They just moved to another country. Early in his letter to the troubled Corinthian church, Paul wrote these words. What no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human mind has ever conceived. The things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. Now, Paul was not specifically talking about heaven. He's talking about the fact that God has prepared some things for us that we just can't begin to even comprehend. This is what Jesus was referring to when he says, I'm preparing something for you. The plan of God was so far beyond the ability to comprehend without actually seeing it. That was the message Jesus had for his disciples. I'm preparing something for you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me, I'm preparing something for you. Great things are ahead for you. You don't even have the capacity in the flesh to begin to grasp what I have prepared for you. This is God's promise in comforting you today. Don't be troubled. Trust Him. Jesus and I have prepared indescribable things for you far beyond what you can imagine. Just trust me. Worship team, would you come?